This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. Amen. Well, take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29, and I'll give you some time to find that. And uh, as you do, I want to just say a couple of things. First of all, if you're a guest today, would you give us some information about yourself and do that here? It's always a joy for us to connect with you. Those are right in front of you. Fill that out. And uh, if you would, put it in those offering plates at the back door. And I also want to remind you of this, visitor, member, whoever you are, uh, could you tell us how to pray for you? We've been emphasizing this more lately, and every time we do, it's really, really encouraging for us. Uh, our staff gets together every Monday morning and we pray. Uh, whether we get these or not, we pray for you, for our church. But last week, we got about 15 of these and we were in this room in a round circle. We prayed for every one of these by name. It was really encouraging for us to know how to pray for you and follow up with you. So just keep us posted on how we can pray. It's an honor for us to do that. Well, if you're a guest today at Prince, it is our normal habit and our conviction to preach through books of the Bible. We are generally just walking through texts of scriptures and allowing the Lord to set the agenda of where we're going. And right now we're in the book of Psalms. So uh, I preached Psalm 47 last week and Lord willing, I'll do Psalm 48 next week. But there are times in which it's not only permissible, but I would say essential for the church to stop and address issues that arise around us whether it be natural disasters or whether it be some crisis in our nation or whether it be a political election, when these things are on everybody's mind, I would say it is essential for the church to speak into them. We don't do this very often, but it is important that we do it. And let me tell you why. It's important because it reminds us that God is speaking to us. God does speak through his word and he speaks through relationships, but God speaks through circumstances. So when things are going on around us, God is saying something to us. And one of the things we have to learn as believers is how to discern the voice of God and what is going on around us. And so stopping and taking moments like this allows us to say, Lord, what do you want to say to us? We want to hear from you. What can we receive from you in these moments? It's also important because it reminds us that God has called us to have a Christian world view. One of the things we're doing here together is not just coming to hear a sermon. We're coming to form a mind to think like a follower of Jesus Christ. One of my responsibilities in every sermon is to help form a worldview. And the way that happens in certain crisis moments or whatever is happening around us is that your pastor, Lord willing, is wrestling with God throughout the week, asking difficult questions. Lord, what do I say? And how do I discern this? And not only what are you saying, but what does this teach us about the way to think like a believer? And then my coming to you on Sunday morning is a way of processing that together. So we all learn together how to think like a believer. But even more than that, it's important because we need to be reminded that God has something to say about everything in life. There is no area of your life in which God does not have something to say. He has something to say about your marriage and your parenting and your singleness and your going to school and your work. God has something to say about everything. 
And so one of our responsibilities is to help through the constant preaching of the word and the application of that to specific moments and times and circumstances is to show you how God has something to say about every circumstance. One of my primary concerns always as a pastor, particularly in the Deep South and in the Bible Belt, is the fear that often we put everything in neat, organized boxes. Meaning we have our Jesus box, and in our Jesus box goes spiritual things. Sunday morning goes in our Jesus box, maybe Wednesday night goes in our Jesus box, and whenever we need something out of our Jesus box, we go in and get it out of that box. But then we have our marriage box, and we have our parenting box, and we have our work box, and we have our hobby box, and we have our leisure box, and we put everything in these neat, organized boxes. But when we gave our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and surrendered to his authority over our lives and made him the king, what he asked of us is to throw away every single box we have and in its place, create one new box that simply says the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every single thing in your life is to go in that box because our understanding of the gospel of how we have been broken by sin and our world is broken and God has made a way to put us back together and make us whole through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and not only to deliver us from sin and Satan and hell, but to bring us eternally back to complete wholeness through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that truth forms everything. Andrew and I were just talking this week that the most important marital advice comes from Philippians chapter two. When it says that Jesus humbled himself and descended and he served, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and he gave his life as a ransom for us. And so we too are to follow his example of not wanting to be served, of putting all of our own agenda aside and humble ourselves in every situation and seek to die to self so that the life of Christ might come through us. Now, you might never think to go to Philippians 2 for marriage advice, but let me tell you something. If you can grab a hold of the truth of the gospel in Philippians 2, it'll save your marriage. You humble yourself, you serve one another, you die to self so that the life of Christ might come through you. That's it. Because everything in your life goes in the Jesus box. Now, I say all that to you this morning to say this. Our politics need to go in the Jesus box. It is possible for us, not only is it possible, it's essential for us to be faithful followers of Jesus Christ, committed to Christ, submissive to Christ, passionate about his kingdom, bowing only to Christ, making him the authority of our life, and at the same time, being faithful citizens of the place that God has put us and caring about the direction this nation goes. Those two things do not conflict. Those things go together but they only go together when we understand them from a Christian worldview and we take our Jesus box and say, okay, God, how do I think politically in this moment as a follower of Jesus Christ? My desire in this message is not primarily a concern with how you vote as much as it is a concern that you understand politics as a faithful Christ-exalting believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the way we get some good clarity on that is to turn to Jeremiah 29. There's some really helpful and practical principles there that will teach us how to be a follower of Christ in this cultural moment. And again, God has put this moment in front of us 
It's essential for us to stop and say, okay, God, how do we learn from this? Now, before I read those first 14 verses, let me give you a little context. God throughout the Old Testament had promised to lead his people into the promised land and he kept his promise and he did. And God made a covenant with his people. He said, I'm gonna continue to bless you and pour out good gifts upon you as you continue to be faithful to me. But if you break my covenant, things will not go well with you. Things will go poorly with you. And as you know the story, they were not faithful to the Lord. They worshiped other gods. They did not keep the Lord central. They failed to walk in holiness and purity before the Lord. And the result was, is that God raised up the Babylonians, raised them up, gave them power so that they might come and take from the promised land, from Jerusalem, Jews, and bring them as exiles, as prisoners in a sense, to Babylon. But even in that moment, they're there in Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. This is exactly the kind of thing God does. God wanted them to continue to hear from him. So God raised up a prophet, many of them, but one specific, Jeremiah, who writing from Jerusalem received a word of God and sent it to the exiles in Babylon, believers living in exile, and instructed them, how should they live as faithful believers living in a foreign land? And that instruction is in Jeremiah 29. So look with me, follow along as I read verses one through 14. It says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priest uh, and the prophets and all the peoples whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jesonia and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jeremiah, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, and the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Whew, that was the part I was sweating. All right, now here's the easy part. <laughs> here's the, all right, verse, uh, verse four. It said, here's the letter the Lord sent through Jeremiah the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses. And live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophet and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the places from which I sent you into exile. 
Now, the question we always have to ask as we read an Old Testament passage like that is, how does this apply to us? You can go wrong pretty quickly by taking an Old Testament text out of context. And the way you understand that is you look to the New Testament and try to figure out how it is that as New Testament believers, we read a specific passage. Now, this one is a bit easy because of passages like 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm not going to read it, but write that down. 1 Peter chapter 2 is important because 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that we as New Testament believers are the chosen people of God who live as exiles in a foreign land. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter takes these Old Testament terms for believers and he applies them to us. He says, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You are a people for my own possession. And then he says this, So I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against your soul. In other words, it takes all of this language specific, even to this context of the believers being in exile in Babylon and says, church, that's you. You're a part of the chosen people of God. You're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are a people of my possession and you live here, but this is not your home. You have another home that is awaiting you, as we read recently in our daily Bible reading reading from Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. The people of God were always longing for a better possession, a better city, a better home. And so this is not your home, but you're living as believers in this place as sojourners and exiles. But it's no coincidence you live here. The one who is sovereign over all things has put you here and he wants you to understand how to live as an exile longing for a better home while living faithfully in this one. And you know that well-known verse that we love in Jeremiah 29, 11, he says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and for good to give you a future and a hope. We love that verse. Many of you, that may be your life verse. And if it is, let me just make sure you understand the context. Because the Babylonians were a brutal and barbaric people like the Assyrians we talked about last week. They would parade the Jews. They would strip them and chain them and parade them through the city while everyone mocked them. We have a conviction here at Prince to have children in our worship service with us. We don't have a separate children's service. We think they need to be here. Because of that, I'm not gonna share some of the stories that I read this week about what the Babylonians did to the Jewish exiles. But it's brutal. But even in the midst of all of that, God is saying, listen, I've got good plans for you. But the plan was this, is you are gonna suffer and it's gonna be difficult to live where you're living right now. You may be ashamed and beaten and mocked and tortured, but someday I'm gonna take you home and I have good things for you. So that message for us is this, life is hard and standing for Jesus is difficult, but if you'll be faithful someday, God has a better home for you after this life in an eternity in his eternal kingdom. That's what Jeremiah 29, 11 says to us. But the reality is, is that God wants us to learn from this text how to balance these things. Being not from here, but living here. Being faithful to our eternal and heavenly calling while at the same time being faithful citizens. And I believe there are four very clear principles for the first eight verses right there. And I wanna plead with you, since we're learning to think like believers, to write these principles down. How do we live like faithful exiles? The first one is this. We must be confident in God's control. Write that down, be confident in God's control. 
When we're reading a passage like this, we have to look for things that are emphasized over and over. And one is seen in verse four and verse seven, and again in verse 14. In verse seven, it says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse seven, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Verse 14, the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. In other words, it is reminding us that the people are in Babylon because God has put them there. Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah, as was Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those stories help put in perspective what this moment was like as those men, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refused to bow down to the false gods and suffered as a result. But Habakkuk also was a contemporary. In Habakkuk 6.1, the Lord says this. The Lord says, I will raise up the Babylonians in order to come and to bring you into exile. Who's responsible for the Babylonians rising up and coming and taking the people into exile? And who's responsible for taking those certain believers and putting them in the exile? Well, the Lord is. He says, I am the one who has sent you here. Daniel 2.21 said, as God is the one who raises up kings, God is the one who exalts them and God is the one who brings them down. When Ephesians 1.11 says that God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, what he means by that is all things. That there is not one thing in your life or one thing in this entire universe that God is not sovereignly watching over and orchestrating for his good, for his glory. God is sovereign over all things. Last week, we looked from Psalm 47, 8, and we also looked from Hebrews 1, 3. This picture of Jesus Christ and the book of Ephesians tells us this in chapter one. After his death, burial, and resurrection, he ascended and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 1 says, after making purification for sins, he sat down. Psalm 47 says, the Lord is seated on his holy throne. And that's an important picture for us in this cultural moment because it reminds us that the Lord is not pacing. The Lord is not anxious because he's got everything under control. And that means that Wednesday morning, the Lord is not gonna wake up and turn on the TV and go, oh, I didn't see that coming. He won't be shocked by any of the outcomes of this week. He is fully in control of everything that is happening in this universe. When I was in college, there was a big theological debate that came and it's died down mostly now. There are still some people you can find that believe this, but it was a theology called open theism. And it meant that God had a perfect understanding of the past and a perfect understanding of the present but he had chosen to submit to the free will of man and is responding to what man chooses. Now, there's a word for things like that. It's called heresy. But this was a big movement. A lot of people were buying into this. And although we don't believe that, sometimes we act like we believe that. Like something in your life took God by surprise. Like God was napping for a moment when you chose some decision and now God's up there trying to figure out exactly what to do with it and how to respond to it and how to make it better. Church, one of the things we have to be really careful of in this moment is to not be doomsday believers, is not to be so consumed with this moment that we lose the confidence that God is always sovereign over all things. I can't tell you how many people have said to me recently, well, if, if this person doesn't win, pastor, it's over. Well, what's over? I don't know what's over. 
At some point, America is going to be a blip in history and will cease to exist. But in that moment, I will be dwelling eternally in the kingdom of God. Because we have a city that cannot be shaken. So it is that sometimes the most profound truths are the simplest. And the one I thought about this morning was this. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. God is controlling all things. So the the first place we have to be, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, if we're gonna put everything in the Jesus box is this. God's got this. You can rest in his sovereign control and perfect wisdom to work out all things according to his perfect will. But the next principle that I want to encourage you to write down is this. Not only are we confident in God's control, we are committed to God's plan. Write that down. We're committed to God's plan. That's in verses 5 and 6. So verse 4, the Lord says, I've got this. I'm in control of this. I put you here. Verse 5 and 6 reminds us that God has a plan for them there. Look what it says in those next two verses. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, I read those verses and I thought to myself, those sound familiar. I feel like I've read some of those words before. This idea of building and living and planting and taking and multiplying. And I realized they're all from Genesis chapter 2. That in God's original plan for creation, he created Adam and Eve, and he said to them, I want you to plant, I want you to cultivate, I want you to multiply. Because the Lord said, it is my desire through your work and through your offspring that all people might come to know me, that I might be glorified through all of the work that you're accomplishing. And now the Lord takes all of those same ideas and says to the people in exile, I want you to keep doing the same thing you've always supposed to be doing. Now, why is it that he would tell the exiles those specific things? The reason is, is because they're scared and they're anxious. And the only thing they want is to go home. They don't want to live in Babylon. They want to be gone from there. Some of you know this feeling. Some of you have been weary and worn out through the struggles, the battles with sin, the battles with sickness. And sometimes you think, Lord, I'm just ready for Christ to return. I'm ready for that life and that kingdom. But the Lord says this to us. You need to be in the place where I've put you and keep doing the things I have always called you to do. So he says to them, listen, while you're there, don't just want to go home, but stay there and live there and plant and build houses and cultivate and have children because this is the place that God has put you. And God wants you to live here in such a way that everything you do declares and displays my glory. It has always been the mission of God to say someday I'm going to take you home, but until that time, give every bit of energy you have to advancing the kingdom of Christ in the place where God has put you. Listen to me. God is sovereign over the marriage you're in. He's sovereign over the school you're in. He's sovereign over the work you're in. He's sovereign over the circumstances you're in. And what he's saying to you in every one of those, instead of dying to get out of them, Plant yourself there and live in that moment, whatever it is, for his glory. It's always been that God's put you there for his mission to see his name made known to the end of the earth. 
I was thinking this week about Ronald Reagan's famous speech when he talks about America as a city on a hill. He says in that speech that he actually didn't come up with that. He got it from John Winthrop. But that's kind of like these verses. I heard that and thought, well, that that sounds more familiar to me than that. I'm not sure John Winthrop came up with that. Then I remembered that Jesus actually said that, sitting on a hill in Galilee, speaking to the multitudes. He gathered his disciples around while the crowds watched, and he said, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. You are a city up on a hill that cannot be shaken. Now, the reason that's important is because The city on a hill is not the United States of America. When Jesus sat up on a hillside in Galilee and he said, you are the light of the world, he was not thinking about the United States of America. The city on a hill that is a light of the world is the church of Jesus Christ. It has always been God's plan to advance his kingdom. This is the reason Jesus did not come with a political agenda, but a kingdom agenda to not advance his kingdom through political means, but through the power of the gospel through the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to me, church. The most powerful force in all of the world is the church of Jesus Christ. And it's not because of our gifts and our skills and our money. It's because what we have, no one else has. And that is all the resources of heaven. Every bit of power, every bit of authority has been given to us as the church. There is no force on earth more powerful than we are. And when the church begins to be the church, then God begins to move. So what God says to the exiles, I'm in control, be confident. But until I take you someplace else, live there, work there for my glory and my kingdom that my name may be made known and know this, I don't care how powerful the Babylonians are, you have more power than they do because all the resources of heaven have been given to you. Church, imagine what would happen in us and in our community if we started to live as if every resource of heaven was available to us for us to grab on and use for the advancement of his kingdom. We are an unstoppable force. The very gates of hell cannot prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And that's a really good place for an amen. A pitiful amen. So we are confident in God's control. We rest, we settle. We know that God's got this. He's not anxious or pacing, he's seated. And then we continue by being committed to God's plan. We're all about the mission. Politics is not the answer, Christ is the answer. And then thirdly, we be concerned with the place that God has us. We're concerned with the place that God has us. That's the third principle. You know, I was thinking about the mission that God has given us and how this all works together. I was reading this week, this is, comes out about every year. There's always a list of the places in which Christianity is growing the fastest. And I read the list just this week. Let me remind you of some of the places where Christianity is growing the fastest. It's growing in Nepal, which is a Hindu nation. It's growing in China, which is an atheist nation. It's growing in the United Arab Emirates, which is a Muslim nation. It's growing in Saudi Arabia, which is a Muslim nation. In Qatar, which is a Muslim nation. In Yemen, which is a Muslim nation. In the United States of America, Christianity has decreased 12% in the last 10 years. 12% in the last 10 years. That's not a political problem, that's a church problem. Politics can't fix that. 
The church is the only one that can do something about that. So if we want to change a nation, you know what you do? Make disciples and invest in the next generation. Make disciples and invest in a generation. We cannot wring our hands at how bad our nation is if we are not being the church and being on mission with God and leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And while we're doing all of that, we're doing that out of a desire for this place to thrive. Because we are concerned with what God has called us to do and his plan, and we're also concerned with this very place that God has put us. Look at verse seven. Verse seven says this, but while you're building and living and eating and multiplying for my glory, seek, this is an active word, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That is an incredible verse. And it's important in the context because right before that, he says, listen, I've put you here first. Second of all, you're here for my glory. Live for me, be on mission. But third, seek the best for the place that I've put you. Which that right there shows us that it's possible to be a solid Christ-centered, kingdom-advancing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and at the same time, be someone who understands what is happening in our nation and be concerned and involved. He even says this, by seeking the welfare of the place that you're in, you're seeking your own welfare because we'll be affected by the welfare of that place. Now, the context of this makes this hard to believe because the Babylonians humiliated the Jews. And yet the Lord says, pray for the Babylonians. The Lord says, do everything you can to make Babylon a better place. Everything in you would hate the Babylonians and despise the Babylonians and want to see God send fire from heaven and annihilate every one of them. And the Lord says, listen, I know this is not home and I know you want to get home, but while you're here, do everything you can to seek the welfare of the place that I have put you. In other words, church, listen, we don't have the right to be passive about what's going on around us. We don't have that right. God has given us a very clear command that it is the responsibility of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to make sure the place that we live is as good as it can possibly be and us to do everything we can, not just to pray, but to seek the welfare of the place that God has put us. And that was almost impossible for the Jews in Babylon. They had no ability to run for office or get on school councils or anything. They had no ability to do things like that. They didn't have the ability to vote. So how much more for us using the influence we have to first of all, be informed. There's no virtue in ignorance. Ignorance is not a virtue. Now, I would say the balance of that is watching Fox News 24 hours a day is also not a virtue. Sometimes you're more formed by Hannity than you are by Jesus. And the reason is because you listen to Hannity more than you listen to Jesus. That will destroy your soul. But listen, it is not a virtue to be ignorant about what God is doing around us. Be aware of what God is doing. Be aware of what's happening in the surrounding community and then be involved. I had a man come to me recently and he said, Pastor, I don't think you understand the significance of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in the community. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, our public school systems, which are the best in the state, are still dramatically departing from anything we would have imagined they would be. 
morally corrupt. The agendas that are behind the scenes in our school system are absolutely incredible. And do you realize if the people of Prince Avenue would just run for the school board, we could change that? Like you have enough people in this church to run for city council, to be on the school board, to change the direction of those schools if we would not only be informed, but involved. involved. And I think he's exactly right. I think it's important for us to say, what can we do to stem the tide of the direction that this culture is going and be involved? And the least thing we can do is to vote. I mean, that's the least we can do. God has given us this opportunity for our voice to count I know it may seem insignificant, but it's not insignificant. It's one of the things that God has given us, an ability to determine the direction of our nation. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a minute and talk about voting, okay? I told you that my main concern in this sermon was not that you vote right. My main concern was that your heart be right. I really want you to think like a believer in terms of the election. But the reality is, is this is a really interesting time in our nation's history. I was talking to a politician recently and I said, are there, are there any like old school Democrats left in Washington? Like Bill Clinton, Dukakis, Carter, old school Democrats. Because when I was growing up, there were different ideas of how we should spend our money and national defense and budgeting. There was a lot, but there was not like two dramatic different visions of the direction of the United States of America and the response where there's none of those left. Because everyone on the left has gone as radical as they can possibly go. And so I don't like saying this is the most important election in our, in, our, in our lifetime because every election they say that and it drives me crazy. But I will say this, we have two completely different visions for the United States of America. I mean, absolutely two completely different visions. We have two options. Now, none of them are perfect. There's issues on both sides. There's issues with both candidates. There's issues with both platforms. It's impossible for you to take one political party and say, I agree with everything. If you agree with everything of a political party, you're not thinking correctly and biblically. Because there's, there's issues on both sides that are difficult for us. But we have two options. And the truth is, what we have to do is both morally and politically ask ourselves this question, which one of these is a better option for the welfare of the place in which we live? Because that's the question that God told us to ask. And on one side, you have a, a group that wants much more government regulations and much more taxes and much more oversight in our lives and less national defense. And you just have to look at those things and make a political decision thoughtfully. What direction do I believe is a better direction politically for the United States of America? So you, you make that call and we can disagree about some of that if we want to. But here's the bigger issue for me and the place where I have to as a faithful pastor. If this bothers you, I just, you just have to know. I have to, as a faithful pastor, talk about the moral decisions. Because these are not political issues. These are biblical issues. There is two dramatically different moral agendas. And so on the left, what you have on the Democratic side is a massively different, radical, moral agenda. Which are openly saying... That if they win, what they would like to do with abortion is to allow late-term abortions up until the moment of birth. That life can be extinguished for no justifiable reason. But if they have Down syndrome and you don't want a Down syndrome baby, 
if you don't like the gender of that child or you just decide at the last moment that you don't want a child, that they want to make it legal at nine months when that baby is coming out of the womb to extinguish that pregnancy right there because they believe it's the right for a woman to do that. And we believe that a woman has rights. We also believe a baby has rights as well and believe that we don't have the authority to make those kind of decisions. Listen, this is a massive distinction over here. And I'll tell you, for me, God has put me in a place where I have some authority over a church and a Christian school and reading not only the desire for the government to remove much of our religious liberties, but the LBGDQ issues, this is the thing. They are going to say that it would be discrimination and illegal for us to say we can't hire a transgender professional, a professor. They're gonna say that it's discrimination And we don't have the right to say that a boy dressed like a girl can play sports with my girl and go into her locker room. And what's going to happen as a result of that is we're going to close because we're not going to bow to that. These are massively different moral agendas. And behind one of the parties is the most demonic, racist group that has ever existed in the United States of America, and that's Planned Parenthood. They're utterly demonic and rooted completely in racism and a desire to extinguish an entire race. Now listen, I am fully aware that people are having a very difficult time, believers with this election. I, I, I understand it. I mean, it's not like we got two morally wonderful guys that we think, man, I, I would love to be buddies with either one of them. This is complicated and difficult, but we're not trying to hire a pastor We're trying to vote for a politician. And we're not even voting for the person because that's a challenge. We're voting for the platform and the policies. And I understand someone who's having a difficulty voting on one side or the other, but it is very hard for me to understand how a Christ-centered, biblically-formed believer can vote for an agenda that is morally corrupt. And it burdens me. And someone's got to be saying these things. Someone's got to be talking about the moral issues that are at stake. Political issues be what they will. We just choose what we think is best. But these moral issues are a non-negotiable. And as believers, we should vote to do everything we can to make sure that we're protecting the sanctity of life. So what do we do? Well, we, we, we kind of live with this settled confidence. God's in control. We then re- be reminded that God has given us this place to live out the mission and then we do everything we can to seek the welfare that God has put us. But the last principle is this. We must be conformed by the truth of God's word. We must be conformed by God's word. The last thing he says to them is this. In verse eight, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now, the reason that's important is because if you live in Babylon for a long time, you're gonna start to think and act and live like a Babylonian. And if you live in America for a long time, you're gonna slowly, without the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to live and act and think just like you're an American. But we're not Americans first, we're Christians first. Our greatest allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom. And as I said, long after this nation is gone and forgotten, I mean, just read through the history of the Bible. There are nations here that were the most powerful nations in the world. We don't even know their names anymore. This nation is a blip. And long after that, the kingdom of Christ will remain. Our greatest allegiance is there. But the only way that you remain mindful of that 
is to keep rooted in this word. Romans 12:1, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Things are not gonna get easier for us as Americans. Things are gonna get more difficult. And are you prepared by your understanding of the word of God, your confidence in God and his word for what's coming next? Church, this is not gonna get easier. No matter what happens, it's going to get more complicated. And it is through your understanding of this that you're gonna be able to live like a faithful believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if there's ever been a moment in your lifetime where you knowing this and believing this and walking in the truth of this is more important than it is right now. We don't have room anymore for ignorant followers of Jesus Christ. You need to be deeply rooted and be able to explain to everyone in every area of your life why you put everything in the Jesus box. So the Lord says, be confident in who I am. Be faithful in the place that I've put you. Seek its good and be conformed by God's word. And someday I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna take you home. And all of this is gonna be over. But until then, it's gonna be difficult. And the driving desire of our lives is that through our church and through our lives that Christ be exalted, that Christ be magnified, that we live this life to the fullest extent we can. What I prayed at the beginning of my sermon, God, we don't wanna miss one thing you have for us in this life. Church, we wanna be the force that God has called us to be as the church of Jesus Christ, leading people to trust and follow him until he returns. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.